0: The years have all passed, we've reached modern times. The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes. Yes, the power was there, the power was found. Six million people have heard that same sound, that old knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more. One Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the first part, the first half of Mary McCarthy's The Groves of Academe. This novel was published in 1952, and it explores uh, issues of McCarthyism, but it's mostly about academia and how it's full of ridiculous people who don't actually care about teaching. It uh, is set in a university uh, like a liberal arts college called Jocelyn up in New York where no one is very interested in teaching none of the students are quite interested in learning and everyone is just kind of looking out for themselves and doing things in their own self-interest and it's all is quite hilarious and, and quite brilliant and it is quite a lot of fun so I really like this novel so I encourage you to pick it up it it's you know, I, I think it's one of the earliest books that sort of does this, that kind of looks at academia in a very, very cynical way that really tries to look at the gossipy nature of the faculty, their pettiness, their kind of self-centeredness, their aloofness from the students, their interest in the in in kind of petty office politics rather than what they're supposed to be doing which is academic inquiry um, now all the characters here the faculty have academic interests are uh, one of our main characters um, domna is a russian-born professor of, of literature of russian and i think french um, our central character i don't know if he's our main character because domna's kind of more of a dominant character in much of the novel but our our kind of the main the character who's who's whose actions kind of participate. The action of the novel, the protagonist, if you will, is a guy named Henry Mul- Mulke, And Mulke is a Joycean scholar, and he seems to be somewhat on the left, but his own political values are kind of second tier and opportunistically used when he, he needs to. Um, he's not really, uh, he, he's not like a card-carrying member of the Communist party, although he claimed to be if, if the needs arise um so anyways this is a a really fun novel if you if you're someone who just thinks academia is full of these types of characters um and i think it is in a way i think this is true to life um having gone through some of this myself i i've met people like these characters i've seen a lot of it uh maybe it's not quite as bad as portrayed here but there's elements of truth in all this um especially in kind of the self-centeredness and the pettiness and the the kind of the delusions of grandeur of many faculty that that they hold, the feeling that what they're doing is so important when in fact it's totally, totally meaningless. I think had she set this novel in a different institution, in like a Harvard or Yale or something, it wouldn't seem quite right because, you know, although those things may exist there, you know, the students are probably, you know, more interested in being there, a little bit more academically prepared. It wouldn't be quite so petty right this she he picks or she sorry mary mccarthy picks a a college that's really really small it's it's a liberal arts school it calls itself a progressive college so it's trying to kind of do student-centered learning and do things from the student perspective and and fulfill the students whole being and whole life and there's a whole chapter about the history of of this college right but we never see anyone really doing any teaching we never see any students really that interested in teaching. We, we see um, a little bit of one-on-one interplay between faculty and students, but most of it is self-serving to the faculty member involved in it, especially Henry Mulcahy, but others too. And uh, it's just really, really quite hilarious as the story um, pans out. Um, this novel itself is set in 13 chapters. It's not very long. It, it, it's about 200 pages in the Library of America which is, um, you know, a, a decent read, but it's not an overwhelming one. Um, but I think this is the longest work by Mary McCarthy we have read so far. The company she keeps was a little bit shorter, and The Oasis was, was much shorter. Speaking of The Oasis, though, I think there's some interesting parallels to this. In both, you have both novels, The Oasis and The, and the Groves of Academe. You have uh, academic culture in a way. In The Oasis, it's more like intellectuals who maybe have some connection to academia, but you don't see them at work ever, right? These are people who are going out to start this new community. But the idea of, of, of kind of political divisions and pettiness um, exists there. That, but in the Oasis, you had two clear factions, and their conflicts were really ridiculous. And I talked about that in the last episode. In this, everyone's kind of looking out for themselves. There's really no one, even... Domna, who is kind of maybe the one likable character here is also at the end of the day, self-serving. And I think Mary McCarthy is really talking a little bit about how academia really is sort of a dead end of, of anything. Um, There's a, there's scenes towards the end that I really want to get to, and I'll talk about mostly in the next episode, but I can't help but bring it up now. And that is where they, they actually meet uh, like they have a poetry conference and a big deal was made at this poetry conference. And again, they can't get anyone famous. They get like second tier poets. And that, that's kind of funny. But one guy who comes as like a proletarian poet, like someone who's really was a communist and really of the communist movement. And, and you see kind of more of a grassroots perspective, but it's totally aloof from any of these characters. And, it's, and the only thing that really matters is what, uh, how he might make the school look bad because of decisions that were made earlier by some of our characters. I don't get into that, but that's the closest we get. And I think it's the closest up-to-date in a Mary McCarthy's work for a true proletarian kind of voice in one of her works. She really is looking at the world through this middle-class lens in all the novels, and that's true even in The Charm Life, the fourth novel I'm going to be looking at in this series. So, um, But I think Mary McCarthy, although she's kind of studying and engaged in understanding that world, she's very much prone to ridicule it and satirize it and and make it look quite ridiculous Uh, the politics here are personal politics at the end all of it there's nothing here no matter how much the overhanging of this might be communism and the McCarthy movement everything is for personal self-interest even the president who is trying to uphold the values of this liberal college is only interested in his own career and his own reputation and all that so um in all that, I think this is a very, very devastating account of of just the way academics function and the way universities work. If you're one of those people who, who cringes when you hear about the, you know faculty getting lifelong ten- tenure and and you know the, those kinds of stories, I think that's a bit overblown. But you would love a novel like this. Um, you know, I I do support actually tenure, but it's still. And I think the erosion of that has been bad for for academic life in general. That said, I, I think there's a lot of truth in her critiques here. That there is a tendency in the academic world to to kind of uh, become very self-centered and arrogant. Even the school itself, in its profession of being a progressive, enlightened institution, you know, it it still is college. It's still trying to make money. It's still attracting students who could pay the tuition right and we, it's hinted at that the students who come to this university largely are ones who can afford it so it's it's not really seeking to change the world none of these professors are and I, I think focus I think several I think it's kind of actually a joke here is, is like a couple of the pe- faculty in the small English department are Joycean scholars right uh, now not that normal people don't read Joyce they certainly do and some of them maybe understand it a lot better um, in fact I read an interesting essay about how some of the the best uh, readers of, of like James Joyce's works you know, are like the Irish public. They're not these academic types, but it, it's kind of, Joyce scholarship is kind of a symbol of that, that kind of aloofness, right? Because who can get their head around Finnegan's Wake, right? Who can get their head around Ulysses? You know, it took me several reads to, to break, you know, that egg and um, many people don't even try, right? You know, it's not the kind of thing you read in high school as an introduction to, to, to literature. Right. Um, so this everything here kind of fits very well for portraying this this these faculty members as as really ridiculous. And, and it's kind of a great novel. I really like it for for what it's trying to do. So anyway, let's jump into a little bit of the content of this of this novel, at least for the first half of it, and, and talk a little bit more about what I've observed in it, although I think I laid out the the key points. It's it's not making any broad themes, it's not doing anything very bold, it's just a satirization of something that, that I think is quite real. And and Mary McCarthy herself you know kinda had this experience. Um she taught at Bard and I think she taught literature at Bard College and she kind of associates this jocelyn college with with Bard. i think they're they're kind of seen as akin. so she, she's drawing her stories from life as she doesn't all our novels up to this point are, are somewhat drawn from life um, certainly the company she keeps we we see a lot of the main character kind of is a standard for mary mccarthy the oasis we have her directly satirizing people directly from her life including former lovers and things uh so that that kind of trend continues in in this novel Okay. Anyways, chapter one is called an unexpected letter, and we're introduced to Henry Molke, who is—I mean—he's just a bad professor. I mean, from right away, from the first page almost, we get a sense that he's a bad professor. The first sense, the first evidence of this is that his one-year uh, contract is not being renewed, and he—he gets the letter. I think it's—I think it's before Christmas, so he's getting the you know right away after he. You know, he hasn't been there that long. It's a one-year contract. Then he's getting word it is not renewed. Right? This is a common thing for many professors these days right? who are visiting professorships and things like that or short, short contracts. That's just a factor of academic life now. Now, as we learn later on, Henry Mulcave has really couldn't find any other work because he's not that good. And that's why he takes this job for just a year contract. But he got this, this basic letter saying, we're not going to renew you next year. Um, and he immediately, of course, focuses energy on how to fight this and how to keep his job and, and how to stick it to the, the dean or the president of the college who has has made this unfortunate decision to to fire him. Um, and he takes it, it. It's all about his personal desires. Right. And he starts to draw in right very early on students to his cause by trying to elicit their sympathies, trying to get other faculty members Involved trying to elicit their sympathy, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. And almost without saying, he takes it personally. quote For the truth was, as Mulcahy had to acknowledge, pacing up and down his small office, that in spite of all the evidence he had been given of the president's unremitting hatred, he found himself hurt by the letter, wounded, to be honest, not only in his amour propre, but in some tend to replace in that sense of contract between men that transcends personal animosities and factional differences, that holds the man distinct from the deed and maintains even in the fiercest opposition the dream of final agreement and concord." End quote. Uh, obviously, this is not what happens in academia. There's no such honor, uh, not even kind of an honor among thieves. And, in academia, it's a pretty brutal world in many ways. And uh, him taking it personally, I think, is is also a level of satirization here, because you know, it, it, it turns out it's kind of a business decision. I mean, Mulkey was a bad professor. He didn't have any students, and the school couldn't really afford to keep this kind of waste of space around. You know, And it was only a one-year contract to begin with. But he takes it personally. It's a personal affront to him, right? The, this idea of, of somehow the, the professor being a, a grandiose figure You know, that's elevated above above the others and the regular rules of the market somehow aren't going to apply to them. Um, You know, he he does do work and we get a little bit of his background in that he he is capable of doing some academic research, but not that much. Right. He's more interested in literature and he teaches a little bit of it. We don't get a sense of him being a great professor in the sense of producing any great works of literature, not even on, on James Joyce. Um, so he thinks through what to do and then basically the choice he has at this point is does he go quietly or does he put up a fight and of course he's going to put up a fight of course he's going to confront the administration of course he's going to get revenge on this on the president the, on the president of the school that principal's named Maynard uh, Maynard Hoare um, a bit of an unfortunate name there um, and, you know, immediately, like Henry wants to, Henry Mulcave wants to get back at him, and he, he's the enemy that he has to overcome. The first character we really hear from besides Mulcave, I think, is his his, his student, um, yeah, student Sheila, who, again, like the characters we meet, except briefly, Domna's students who are in her office. Looking for her help for work or whatever, are, are simply not that interested in in scholarship or academ- academics at all. Sheila is mostly interested in, in kind of office politics as well. So he shares, he shares with her the news that he's been fired from Jocelyn. You know, I, I get the sense he's maybe trying to build up support already among the students or build up pathos about his plight among among. His students, and in fact, that's what he gets because the next chapter, which is called Mulke, has an idea starts. What the student Sheila McKay replied to his confidence was how terrible Dr. Mulkey, how awful to have such a break to break such a nice piece of news to your wife. Among the still filial section of the student body, the mulques were acclaimed as a very devoted couple, an ideal couple, the girls said, so wrapped up in each other. They were popular, especially as chaperones, at the regular Saturday night dances, with the fat girls, pale girls, pimpled boys, chinless boys, who stiffly paired off in the draft, drafty gymnasium decorated with bows of crepe paper, while the rougher elements scornfully old self-played um, phonograph or cheap three-piece band, of the basketball nets and the Indian clubs drove off in its convertibles to Gus Roadhouse." End quote. I, that's, that's kind of a funny scene, too, where you already kind of have uh, what's it, it's establishing that was most important for the students at Jocelyn is social life. And the social life for kind of the, the less popular uh, character uh, students is like these kind of lame dances that are chaperoned by the faculty. And the, the cool kids go off in their, in their cars to. To the roadhouse or make a point or whatever uh it does sound kind of high schooly more than college i don't know what college was like in the 50s you know maybe yeah you know, that's what it was like you know yeah well more before the sexual revolution obviously campuses were a more uh, regulated environment between the sexes so you know if you wanted to interact you know more freely you have to go to the roadhouse right what happened on campus tended to be pretty pretty straight and so the chaperones here, you know, make sense from that time. Um, but again, what you get the sense of what they're—that's what they're interested in. You know, the, he's popular not because he's a great professor; or he understands Joyce so well. What's popular? He's popular because he's seen as having the ideal relationship, and the girls are kind of swoon over what a good uh, husband he is and how nice his wife is and how they are at the sh- you know at the parties and things. Um, really great stuff here, I, I think. There's very little that's not interesting to read. I, I found the Oasis a little harder to get through and a little duller. And, you know, it just didn't work for me as well. This did. This worked with me really well. It just uh, it flowed a lot better. And it, 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 just, it just went down a lot better because it's uh, just enjoyable. I mean, there's just pleasure in every paragraph of, of kind of eviscerating this world. Um, and it goes on and on. But anyways, let me let me focus on the plot a little bit and, and not get too much into how great this prose is. Just pick it up and, and read it and have fun with it, I think, if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Um, it's not the great. you could call it a McCarthyist not, I'm not about McCarthyism, but it's not. I mean, if anything, it's about McCarthyism being used as a tool for petty office politics in a uni- in a college. That that's the far as it goes. I mean, there's really actually no McCarthy esque repression going on here. But anyways, Mulcahy's idea, he has essentially two ideas that are kind of joined together of how he's going to fight this dismissal, this failure to, not even a dismissal, he's just, his one year contract's not being renewed, right? It's, it's not even a, a straight up firing, right? And I know that's sometimes used by universities, they give you a two, one, two year, three year contract, and then they don't fire you at the end of it, they just don't renew your contract if, they, if you didn't fit or they didn't like you or whatever. Um, so his plan is to to make up essentially two things, <laughs> but they're both lies. Both are lies. The first is that he's a communist party member, and he's going to say if he says I'm being fired as a communist party member. Now this is, maybe seems I- ironic. You would think in the McCarthy era, being a being a communist party member would be a way to get fired and a reason to be fired, but not at a college like this, not at Jocelyn, which is supposed to be this liberal progressive place that would never fire one because of a former communist party membership he's he claims to be a former communist party members, member and he thinks that will if i can kind of establish that and say that and may say that's the reason i'm being fired then the faculty and the president will have no choice but to reinstate me because you know how dare you know if it got out that professor at jocelyn was fired because he was a communist oh my or a communist in the past, a former Communist Party member, oh, what shame would come down on this, this progressive institution. His other plan is even worse in a way, in that he basically says, my wife, Catherine, who is very popular among the students, popular on campus, is sick, and she doesn't quite know it. Uh, it's useful that she doesn't quite know it, but he knows it and he knows that if he doesn't have a job he's not going to be able to afford her medical treatment and it'll be horrible and he needs this job to help her with her treatments for this for this illness so that's his idea he is going to basically lie in order to convince the faculty to support him and force of course eventually the administration to rehire him now there's a really interesting element of this in that Mulke has to almost convince himself that this is true he has to Make these lies truth, on some level, for it to be believable, or, or just shows you how easily these these kind of faculty members delude themselves that they're doing the right thing, even though they're clearly um, really really bad. Uh, quote: This obliged him to rearrange his emotions. He would not deny that manlike he had been laggard in marital feelings, and adolescence had set him to rights. Catherine's health, always a matter of concern to him, now abruptly became paramount. He had no right, he remorsefully acknowledged, to inflict a new worry on her at a time when her strength is depleted. On no account must Catherine know he rehearsed the prescription to himself until he felt it inhere in him like a natural spontaneous anxiety. No worry, rest, light exercise, the warnings of doctors reactivated, chorused, seldomly in his ears, as if in deference to her condition. He lowered the pitch of his feelings. His thoughts went on tiptoes, gently circling round her as he had seen her last that morning milk pail dangling a toy over the sick child in this makeshift crib. The term heart murmur trembled out at him of a distorted memory. Was it herself or young Stephen she had been speaking of?" Quote. So he's he's convincing himself. He's working himself up to to make this lie as real as possible. Um, and it, again, it's, it's all really funny and well done. Now, chapter three, in chapter three, we were introduced to Domna, Domna Rajev. She's, again, a Russian faculty member. She's the youngest member of the of the literature department. She teaches like Russian language and French and some literature and stuff. And she's Russian. So her character is interesting. She is presented right away as the most moralist. For instance, she is anti-communist but at the same time she's an, against any political repression. So she's very susceptible to Mul- Mulcahy's claim that he was being politically persecuted because he was a former communist party member right and she this this peaks her and gets her on board very right away but of course it's all based on on a lie so we got this really nice scene where he basically barges in into her office one demanding to talk to her and she's dealing with her students this is one of the few times we actually see like this kind of professor student interactions that seem to have any meaning to it as he's actually trying to help her out he's or she's trying to help the student out but um, he finally gets to talk to her and he reveals his story that he was a Communist Party member um, and, and that that's why. He, and, and then he, well, he shows her the slip, the letter why he, that he's being fired. And he says, the reason I'm being fired is this. And then he adds to it the, the whole sob story about Catherine's health. And she falls for it pretty quickly. Now, to really make the story more rich, he adds in his ac- his account to Domna of of his plight that the only other people who know are Maynard and Esther Horn, like the president and his wife, like they know, and still they cast me out, and you know, doom my doom my wife, doom, doom this beautiful woman to to an early death, uh, and and meet to poverty. It's 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 he's just kind of pulling up the sob story, and and. You know, he and he—he's really manipulative. So he's able to like, kind of say, "Well, what should I do?" You know, kind of turn it over to Domna to maybe take the leadership in some kind of faculty protest or or to help him get reinstated. You know, again, it's—it's it's all pretty gross the way it's 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 done here. And again, remember, this is just a one-year faculty member, who, you know, probably wasn't going to be there a long time anyways. He didn't have many students. It wasn't that effective of a, of a teacher. It's something he spent a lot of his time in the social life, you know, shampooing those balls or whatever instead of actually teaching and, and building up, you know, interest among students. Not that these students are the most keen to do any reading or, or, or do much. I mean, there's actually a joke later on where uh, one other professor says, you know, what's the worst milk you can do to the student is give her an F. And Domina says, well, that'd be horrible." And, sh- and the other professor says like, well, we can think of worse things than to have them make up a class and do some reading over the summer. And these are really, really bad students. A lot of them are rich. A lot of them don't really are just going through the motions. Um, are there for the prestige or the rank or whatever of, of you know, they're for the piece of paper, right? Um, at the end of the, at the end of the process. None of them are really, really that keen on learning too much. Um, but anyways, Domna is very, very quickly sympathetic. He even built up a whole story about how when he was fired, he 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 asked for a two-year contract because of the moving expenses to come to New England and to set up a household there. And and then when they didn't give it to him, he had to tell them about this illness to try to get the two-year contract and all this stuff. It's and then this is how they know about this Catherine's illness. He really he must have rehearsed this. We don't see him really rehearsing this, but he's. Or he's just a he's a sociopath character almost. I mean, he's so good at manipulating other people, you know, of of manipulating their emotions and their and their sympathies. And and Domna is the kind of character who's most likely to to fall for that, right? Even though she's someone who's not very, not someone who would be sympathetic to communism. I mean, she seems hostile to. It. She's actually quite shocked to learn that. That Mulvey Mulkey was a communist at one point, which he wasn't. Uh, at least he wasn't a formal Communist Party member. But you know, she's still very, you know, sensitive about political persecution in this the McCarthy era. You know, and, and it's and she has certain values that she maintains um, that are being offended by if he's being fired for political reasons, which again he's not. He's not being fired for political reasons at all as is clear I think we won't I think it's not till chapter eight when we actually have the the the, like the president's point of view and he explains to the faculty why this guy was not his contract wasn't renewed and it's really because he was a bad professor really really horrible professor um so anyways chapter four is called ancient history and this basically is is the history of of mostly the university I would say and it's it's uh it almost it's about 20 pages long it's fairly long but it it kind of runs out the whole history of this progressive college and it's Mary McCarthy's moment to really criticize kind of the hypocrisy of of institutions like this now the heart of the philosophy seems to be something like uh, getting like cultivating the whole student in a way it sounds kind of weird like it's kind of this fluffy talk which i'm not entirely convinced of but um let's let's read a little bit of that gets another philosophy of of what this school is is after um where is it despite a high tuition quote up despite a high tuition and other screening devices a geographical quotient interviews with the applicants and with the applicant's parents submissions of photograph when this was not practical, solicitation of private schools. Despite a picturesque campus, a group of long, thick-walled, masqueraded, wall-shuttered stone dwellings arranged around a coupled chapel with the planting of hemlock, the remains of a small, old, German-reformed denominational college that had imparted to the secluded, rigid Calvinist sweetness of worship and election, something perhaps the co-educational factor, something the once-advertised freedom had worked to give the college a peculiarly plebeian and subversive tone. Like that of a big city high school. Well, that's more of the description of the college itself. So, I mean, it, it's not a surprise that I, when I read about this, it did seem like this was like a glorified high school in a lot of ways. And the fact that the faculty don't seem to be doing much research. Um, the students don't really care much about academics. They're mostly interested in their social life or whatever and gossip about the teachers and stuff like that. But anyways, here, here the, no, it's, it's a little bit early here. We get the philosophy. Um, what they wanted to introduce into their region was a center of personalized education with courses tailored to their individual needs, like that of their own foundational garments, with a staff of experts and consultants, each with a little name in his field, like the Michels and Antoines of Fifth Animal, to interpret a student's pers- personality. In the long run, these views seemed so harmonious they were found to be far apart. The founder had the sincere idea of running a college as a laboratory. Failure in an individual case he found as interesting a success. Under his permissive system, the students were free to study or not as they chose. He believed that the healthy organism would elect like an animal was best for it. If the student failed to go in the direction indicated by the results of his testing or in any direction at all, this was noted down and in time communicated to the parents merely as a matter of interest. To push him in any way would be a violation of the neutrality of the experiment. The high percentage of failure was taken to be a significant of the failures of secondary education. Any serious reform of the methodology must reach down to that of kindergarten and of nursery school, the whole preparatory system. And it was noteworthy in this connection that the progressive schools were doing their job no better than the old fashioned classical ones. Indeed, comparative studies showed the graduates of progressive schools to be more dependent on outside initiative on an authoritarian leadership pattern than any other group in the community. so that's um, pretty biting. I think, that said, I mean, I personally am sympathetic to the unschooling mode. I I realize it doesn't work in all cases and for all people. But, you know, I I think in some sense, factory education might be worse in a way. But I just find this hilarious that they, they have this model of just letting the students do whatever they want, study if they want, take this class, take that class, no big deal. And if they fail... If they continue to fail, if they can't make it well, it's because the secondary education stunk, right? I've heard that so many times when I was teaching college, you know, you know that the problem, st- the problem with students these days is the high schools are horrible, right? Not the reason they can't write or cite a source or do any of these things. It's, it's not because we're not teaching them properly. It's because they don't come in pro- you know, well prepared enough. And, and it seems Jocelyn had that same Philosophy. Of course, there's a we were told r- at the same time that it's high tuition. So only rich parents who these are kids who probably aren't going to be wanting for much in life anyways. They're probably going to get good jobs to their connections as long as they get that piece of paper. So it's it's kind of a game. It doesn't matter. Nothing here really matters. And you don't get a sense that it's it's that important. Um and yeah it's a it's a pretty biting critique of this of this this university and yeah mary mccarthy spends a lot of time dwelling on this philosophy and its failures and its shallowness all right um i think i think i'm almost done with my comments for the first half of this novel i just want to say a little bit about chapters five and six Um, basically uh chapter five is called in cameron chapter six called uh, what's it called lucubrations and these two together are mostly about the rest of the faculty in the English department and, or the literature department and how they come to know about this case. Um, so um, Howard Furness is the, the, the head of the literature department here. So he's, of course, got a keen interest in this. And he's, he's going to be the one who they're going to want to speak up for Mulkey as, as they kind of organize to, to get him to keep his job. Um, but yeah, these two chapters basically are about how Domna, you know, or mulke uses Domna to actually get the faculty to begin to, to side with him. And it's actually kind of interesting because um, although many seem sympathetic to him, at the same time, many faculty members are kind of aloof to it or a little bit disinterested or... You know, a lot of them comment that he's not that good of a professor, that he doesn't really do all his paperwork. And then Dolminus says, well, who does do all the paperwork? We all fall off, you know, make mistakes here and there. But, you know, he shouldn't be fired for it. Um, and they all kind of have their their perspectives on that. And some are more honorable about it than others. And I think there's two characters in particular who seem to be the strongest who kind of seem to have moral reservations about the firing and, and really want to stand up for him, and that's that's Domna, of course, and then another professor um, named Alma, and she, and she's she's the one who goes so far as to either, even threaten to quit to resign if if Mulke's contract is not renewed. Now Domna sort of sums up her feeling um, this way. Um, many factors quote many factors are involved in a decision to let an employee go professional competence the so-called personal equation the employee's needs and future prospects and finally what one may, might name the exemplary efforts of such a decision if maynard lets henry go how many other college presidents seeing what maynard as a professional progressive has done will cease to find any qualms of proceeding against their own communists, ex communists quasi communists this isn't a permanent situation in which to be a communist will guarantee internal carte blanche to teach and conduct oneself as one pleases, please, but an emergency in which any individual weakening of principle is likely to produce a landslide. Each of us knows from his own inner experiences how tenuous are the restraints of conscience, how pliant to mass opinion and precedent to the justifications by numbers. If Maynard is permitted to fire Henry without protest or challenge, 50 other heads will roll. So she's seen it through the eyes of, of someone who who is is at least aware of of the I guess of the of political repression, right? She is, she's a Russian background, so she, she might be against communism, but she's more against authoritarianism, and 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 she's for freedom of conscience and freedom of expression, and so she's standing up for kind of academic freedom here. Um, and of course, it's a really fascinating conversation about the ethics of firing a professor or. When professors should be let go, and we hear from all different points of view, right? The joke here is that, first of all, a lot of these people have their own self-serving interests in in Mulcahy's, um, you know, or some don't care, some aren't willing to risk themselves. It's really Alma and Domna who who come out the strongest, kind of morally uh, on this. I mean, Alma goes the farthest, even threatening to to quit. Um, but the point is, uh, the, what's, I guess the backdrop of this is that it's all a lie. Mulcahy wasn't fired for being a communist. It's just uh, something he invented on the spot to, to basically do exactly what Domino was saying. is not going to happen is that people will just be able to use communism as a shield in any university like this because of the McCarthy-is, McCarthyism um, uh, era because of course any progressive liberal institutions would look at you know a person being fired for being a communist and and say that's that's a horrible thing to do to someone for a past affiliation or even a current affiliation you're just falling in for the mccarthy witch hunt scare stuff and we're not gonna we shouldn't do that we're above that right malke Mul- wants to use it as a shield and Dom is saying that's not what's going to happen we're just protecting people's freedom of speech of course, no one knows at this point really why he was 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 being fired. Um, actually, yeah, let's let's do one more chapter because it it kind of carries on like that. Um, chapter seven. Um, oh, what a tangled web we leave weave. Now this mo- is a little bit later. This is set a little bit later, and we have Mulke speaking with Alma, and what they ba- basically Mulke. At least is trying to talk Alma out of her threat of resigning. she's kind of oh, don't do it for me. Think of your career or whatever. Now, actually, he's you know he he's willing to use people. It's pretty clear he's willing to use whoever he has to. But he has to put up the protest in order to keep up appearances. Um, but anyways, yeah, I think that does it. That that more or less is that, that's what happens in the first half of of the novel. Um, I'll talk about the second half in the next episode, and I'll say a little bit more about where the novel goes. I think, I think in some ways the novel gets a little bit more interesting in the second half. The first half is really about this guy getting fired and trying to organize the faculty around it. it, it the, the satire really requires the second half to be complete because um, you know, everything kind of gets turned on the head in a really brilliant and, and funny way. Um, you know the, the, the firing thing gets kind of dispensed with pretty early. But um, the plot goes on in some very interesting ways after that. So, um, yeah, that's my initial thoughts about The Groves of of Academe, uh, a pretty, pretty fun novel. And I I think you might enjoy picking it up. So, um, yeah, that's that's it for now. if you read this novel or if you have any thoughts on academia and academic culture and and where it is and where it's been has it changed since the 50s has it gotten worse has it gotten better uh is mary mccarthy being hyperbolic about uh the self-serving nature of academia or its shallowness Um, have you ever taught at a university like this or a college like this do you have your own thoughts about her perspective and her critique or what about mccarthyism you know do you think mccarthyism did um provide a shield for for people to 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 kind of def you know to keep their job when maybe they didn't deserve it um i don't know i you know not everywhere obviously but in places like this it's a kind of an interesting side effect of mccarthyism that i never thought of before right that's the most like most people we, we can you know we think back and we condemn the mccarthy era for its overreach and it's over uh, you know and it's 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 kind of paranoia and all that but the fact that certain like in among liberal circles to to join in would have been like the worst possible thing so it became for you know it became a possible shield for people I don't know if it ever happened that way but maybe Mary McCarthy saw something at a university that made her maybe this is drawn from life so much of her work is so anyways let me know what you think uh, of this if you've come across it Thanks for, for listening, as always. Uh, leave your comments below or send them to me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I'll be back shortly with my my thoughts on the rest of of The Grows of Academe. A great novel. Lots of fun. Enjoy it. I hope you do. Um, thanks. I'll see you look next time. Look over the oceans. Look over the lands. Look over the leaders with the blood on their hands. And open your eyes and see what they do when they knock over their friend they're knocking for you with their knock on the door, knock on the door here they come to take one more with their knock on the door, knock on the door, here they come.